If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to open with me to Mark chapter 10. Uh, Mark chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 31 today. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. Now, uh, if you've been here a while, you know that we're actually taking a break from our study through Hebrews. Uh, we're going to do it. We're doing a three-week mini-series, which Pastor Kyle launched last week on biblical generosity. Now, here's what I want to say. If you are a guest with us today, all right, don't, don't look at the spouse or don't look at whoever brought you here and be like, I knew it. They just want our money, all right? I, I'm guarantee you one thing. If you, if you stick with me through the next however many minutes, uh, you are actually going to hear something about biblical generosity I believe that you've never heard before. And at the end, I'm not asking you to give anything. Uh, the, actually, the only thing that I'm, in, in terms of finances, the only thing that I'm asking Jesus to do is for every single person in this room to give him their hearts fully. And so today we're going to look about the heart of biblical generosity, the heart of generosity. That's where we're, that's where we're taking you this morning. Is we're going we're to take a deep examination of our hearts today. Now, why is this very important? Because we want to we start by understanding the gospel. Uh, the gospel is important for us recognizing generosity. So one of the most famous verses in all of Christianity, one that many of you probably have memorized and know, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave... Now, is that not a word around, sermon around generosity? He gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish, but have. So you gain, we gain, he gave, we gain. What do we get? Eternal life. That the very gospel itself is a gospel of generosity. The reality is that you and I are sinful people. We deserve everything that we get. We deserve to die. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell. We deserve to be separated from God forever from our sins. That's what we deserve. And we can't earn our way to heaven. The Bible is very clear that you can't earn your way towards salvation. And so God, out of his love for you and me, he sent, he gave his son to pay the debt price. To pay the debt that sin brought into the world. And the way that Jesus paid for our sins is he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. Died the death we deserved to die and victoriously rose again to prove that he has defeated sin. That he has defeated the sting of death and that he has defeated our enemy. And he did it by giving himself for us. So you're going to hear a gospel approach to generosity. Now, me, Pastor Kyle said this last week as he kicked off our series, and uh, I'm 100% behind him on this statement. Did you know that the Bible speaks more on money than any other topic? In fact, there are approximately 2,350 verses that speak on money. The Bible speaks more about money than it does on faith and prayer combined. Jesus spoke more on money than he did on heaven and hell. And so here's my belief. My belief is that God, obviously it's very important for us to understand what God shows us about money and wealth. Because obviously he taught, taught on it quite a bit, right? And so therefore, as a church, as your, as your pastors, we, we don't want to just give you the small counsel of God's word. We, we believe we need to give you the full counsel 
of God's word. And that means we need to be brave enough to talk about money. And I know, guys, trust me, I understand. When people start talking about money, you think, oh, they're trying to line their pockets. When people start talking about money, it, it comes off as this like convicting and guilt type sermon. You're not giving enough. And I get it because most of us, we're, we're kind of pushed back against or we kind of don't like or resent the idea of talking about money because people have abused that in the past. Churches and pastors have abused that in the past. But I want you to understand, like, don't categorize center church in that category until you hear us out. This morning, what I'm going to show you from this text in Mark chapter 10, I'm going to show you that generosity exists as an expression of one's heart desire for Jesus. So if you're taking notes, that's what you should write down. Biblical generosity exists as an expression, it's an outward act, as an expression of a heart that desires Jesus. So let's read along in Mark's gospel here in Mark chapter 10, verse 17 through 31. Let's look at the heart condition of generosity. Mark, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes in verse 17. And as he, that he being Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Parents in the room, say amen. Children in the room, say amen. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, if you write in your Bible, I would highly recommend that you underline those two words. Loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at him and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. In the last first. I want to show you two things in this text today. The first thing I want to show you is I want to show you the value of Jesus. And the second thing I want to show you is a warning. A warning about wealth. The value of Jesus and the warning about wealth. Here we have this, this man. He was, Jesus is setting out on this journey and this man runs up and kneels before him. Now the, the text, we see two accounts of this in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. And in Matthew's gospel, we see that this man was young. 
He was a young man. In Luke's gospel, we see that he was a ruler. But in all three gospels, we see that he was rich. He had money. He had wealth. And this man, he runs up to Jesus and he calls these, he says these words, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. In fact, that is a question that many people are asking today, even though they don't know they're asking the question. When they look in the world and they see all the suffering of the world, when they look in the world and they, they feel the pain of this world, when they look in the world and they see death and dying, when they go to funerals, they are reminded of our fragileness as human beings. And in every single person, there's a, there's a question mark, there's a wonder about what, what happens when I die. What happens when all this is over? What happens when I breathe my last? The reality is that, brothers and sisters, you and I, we were created for the garden, not the grave. The only reason the grave came is because Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, we all sinned with Adam and therefore we all die. And everybody's asking that question as they face the reality of their mortality. They're asking the question, what is beyond this life? And I think everybody's seeking to know the answer to that question like this man is asking. Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to rid myself of what I feel and what I see in the world around me? And that is a question that people are asking. And it's a question, church, that if you're a church member, a partner here, that it's a ch- church, it's an answer that you need to be ready to give. And thankfully, Jesus gives us the answer. Look what he says in verse 18. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, what is Jesus saying here? That goes against all of our theology, doesn't it? Like Jesus, we know Jesus is good. We know that Jesus never had any sin. The Bible is very clear that there is no sin found in Jesus. That was the only way he could pay for our sins is he had to be our lamb without a blemish. He had to be our sinless sacrifice. So he turns to this man and he says, hey, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. We also know that it kind of messes us up a little bit because when we read John's gospel in John chapter one, verse one, he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So is Jesus not God in the flesh? Is he claiming that he is not God in the flesh? Actually, he's not claiming any of that. What he's trying to do here through this questioning to this rich young ruler, he says, listen, you are asking the right question. You're just asking it the wrong way. If you're going to call me good, good teacher, then that automatically means that you have to know that I am God in the flesh. You have to know that I came to be the Savior who takes away the sins of the world. And so instead of asking me, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question you should be asking, if you really believe I'm the good teacher, if you really believe I'm the Messiah, the Savior, what you should be asking is, good teacher, how do you get me good? How do you give me eternal life? Alistair Begg, a Scottish preacher, I actually found this clip from another pastor named Joby Martin. Alistair Begg, he talks about this and he says, when we talk about salvation, if somebody asks you, how do you know you're saved? And you begin with the pronoun I, you're already missing the boat. Because you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. In fact, it is the sin in you that keeps you from, and me, from eternal 
life. He says we never start the pro- we never start an answer to that with the pronoun I. We always start the pronoun with the answer he. Here's what Jesus did for me. Here's what the good teacher did for me in order to inherit eternal life. Alistair Begg, he talks about it in terms of think about it on the, as a thief on the cross. So if you remember Jesus on the night, on the day when he was um, crucified, he's, standing, he's, he's on crucifixion in the middle and to his left and his right are two thieves on the cross. And the thief looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, which I believe is a statement of faith. And so they all die. And so Alistair, Alistair Begg, he tells like kind of like a speculative story about that third thief on, the, on that thief on the cross. Could you imagine, he says, being that thief on the cross? You come up to the gates of heaven and there's the angel right there and he has the book open. And he's like, OK, um, I need your name and what church you attended and the date you were baptized. And the thief's like, uh, I don't even know what church is or baptism. And the, and the angel looks up and he's like, um, okay, just, just wait a minute, wait a minute. And he goes and get his angel supervisor. And the angel supervisor says, so I hear you don't have a church or a baptism date. Okay, um, how about this then? Can you, can you accurately define and describe for me the doctrine of justification? And the thief's like, mm-hmm. Oh, okay, well, how about can you define and describe for me the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture? And he's like, mm-hmm. And the supervising angel scratches his head and he looks up at, at the thief on the cross, that thief that was on that cross, and he says, How did you get here? And the thief said, The man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the gospel. It's the man on the middle cross that says that I can come here today. It's not I, it's he. And if you don't get that, then you'll miss everything about generosity. Jesus, knowing this in this man, he says, hey, let me kind of let me begin to expose you here. Let me expose the real reality of your heart. He says, you know, the commandments and he gives the last six of the commandments and he actually gives them in a different order. He says, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And this young man, this rich young ruler, he looks at Jesus. And I believe with all sincerity, he says, teacher, all these things I've done from my youth, I'm good. What he doesn't realize, what Jesus is actually pointing out to him, is he's actually trying to point out, like, actually, it's not what, on the, it's not what I see on the outside, it's what I see on the inside that's the problem. If you recall back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew's gospel about our heart, In Matthew chapter 15, listen to how Jesus describes what goes on within us. Jesus says what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. So I always we always tell our children at home, whatever they whatever they speak is a direct reflection of what's inside them. That's a good one. You can you can share that with your children anytime you want. When they say bad things, you're like, hey, when you speak, that's a direct reflection of what is inside your heart. And then he says this for out of the heart come evil thoughts. For out of the heart come murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And these are what defile a person. Jesus is looking at this rich young man. He says, you missed everything that I taught about on the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, you, you think you've never murdered anyone? Yeah, you, you've never actually went out there and stabbed someone. But let me explain to you the heart of a murderer. 
You have heard that it was said to those you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That there is such thing as unrighteous anger in your heart that leads you to murder them in your heart. That if you could, you wish that they were dead. He says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That even an insult of someone made in God's image is basically murdering them with your tongue. Mm. How does that resonate with us this morning? Hopefully you're sitting there and go, like if you're a Christian, hopefully you're sitting there and you're going, oh, thank you for the middle cross. Right? Thank you for the middle cross. That's what you should be saying in this moment. Or when he talks about adultery, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's saying, I'm not looking at what you're saying you've done on the outside. Jesus says, actually, what I'm looking at is what's going on in the inside. You realize that Jesus gives the harshest words to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. The religious leaders, man, they look good on the outside. The Jewish Pharisees, man, they were the number one guys on, on, in that area. They were always like, oh, you're the best Christian. Oh, you're the best. Like, here, come sit at my table. Like, you're, you're number one. We want to look up and be you. And Jesus, Jesus constantly goes to the Pharisees and he's like, listen, you are a whitewashed tomb. Wow. Jesus basically says to them, hey, you know what? You look good on the outside. Your tomb is nice and white, but on the inside, you are dead and dirty. Jesus is like, you're, you're cups and plates that have been washed on the outside, but on the inside, you are filthy. Filthy. Jesus is not talking about simply mere actions. Jesus is showing this man, and he's showing us, there's, there's a heart issue here. And there's a heart issue in all of us. So this man says, I've kept all these from my youth. And look at what Jesus says. Look at the description of 21 and then what he says. And I love this. It says, Jesus looking at him. And this is the first time I've seen this in like, since I started studying it. He says this, loved him. Jesus, when this man comes and like, I'm good. Jesus goes, I know you're not, but I love you. He doesn't, he doesn't get mean. He doesn't get critical. He doesn't send Peter an emoji, smack my head, another one, another Pharisee. They didn't have text messages back then, by the way, so that was kind of a joke. Stay with me. He says, no, he looks at this man, he says, I I love this man. Aren't you so thankful that's Jesus? Like when you and I, when we look in our hearts and we see the filth and the dirtiness in our hearts and our minds, aren't you glad that Jesus responds to that with love? Because honestly, he shouldn't. That's not who he is. He is love. He, he shares his love. One of his attributes is love that he gives to us. And so even if you're sitting here this morning and your heart is a little bit messed up, I want you to know that Jesus' first response to you is one of love. And it's a loving confrontation because he doesn't want your heart to stay there. He wants your heart to move to him. And he's going to do that here. Look what he says to this young man. He says, you lack this one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Okay, the young man says, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, wrong, great question, ask wrongly, how do I give you eternal life, Jesus says. And he says, here's what you got to understand. He says, the way that you inherit eternal life is by giving your heart to me, which means you got to drop everything else in the world. 
which means you've got to make me the most valuable. Inheriting eternal life means you put Jesus on the throne of your heart. And this rich young man, he can't do it. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. When I read that, I'm disheartened. When I read that, I'm saddened for this man. I'm like, what did you just do? Do you not realize who it is that is standing in front of you? That Jesus is more valuable than any possession in this world you can have. And Jesus just offered you himself. And you're like, "Mm -mm, I'd rather have my money. That's the heart condition. The heart condition for this young man and the heart condition for many of us in this room is simply this. Our hearts are sometimes clinging on to things that are preventing us from fully clinging to Jesus. Now for many of us, that's probably our wealth. The text is about wealth. We're going to see a warning here in a minute. But the reality is, do you see Jesus as the most valuable possession on this planet? There was this picture that um, circulated a couple years ago that I hated. It was a picture of Jesus. And maybe you've seen it before. And if you like retweeted it or Facebooked it, like, hey... I'm not trying to ostracize you here. I'm just saying I didn't like the picture because there was better ways to express it. So I'm not making fun of you. I'm helping correct your theology, okay? And it's this picture of Jesus, and he's on his knee, and behind his back he's got this really big teddy bear. And he has his hand out, and there's this little bitty girl, and she's holding on to this really little teddy bear. And Jesus, as he's reaching out his hand, he says, trust me. And she looks at Jesus holding on to this little teddy bear and says, but I love it too much. Now, my problem with that picture is that the idea is if you will just give Jesus the little teddy bear, then he's going to give you the big teddy bear. And that is the exact problem with the prosperity gospel. If you give Jesus a little money, he's going to give you more money. If you give Jesus a little more faith, he's going to give you a little more health. If if you give Jesus a little more whatever, then he's going to give you more happiness. Man, that is not Jesus. At least that's not the Jesus I read in the Bible. And trust me, I've read this Bible front to back multiple times. And I don't see that Jesus in here. The way the picture should have been drawn is this. Jesus on his knee looking at that little girl with both of his arms open. And he says, drop all that possession. Drop all that stuff and cling to me. I'm your treasure. That's what it's about. And this young man, he couldn't drop his wealth and cling to the truest treasure on earth. But before we're too quick to judge him, what about us? What what is that that you're holding on to? What is that one thing that you're unwilling to give to Jesus? What is that one thing? What is that teddy bear for you that you're not willing to drop and cling to Christ? And the reason that you're probably not willing to drop it is because you really don't see the value of Jesus. Just like we read in our our call to worship, Jesus talks about, he says, hey, it's like the guy who found this treasure and buries it on this land. And he goes and he sells everything that he has. And he comes back and he gets the treasure. He buys the land and gets the treasure. That's talking about Jesus. 
For for us, when we see the true value of Jesus above anything in this world because of what he has done for us and the relationship that he restores to our Father who is in heaven, we as Christians should be the ones to lay everything down for the one who laid down his life for us. But do we value Jesus like that? What is it that you're holding on to? Is it a relationship that you shouldn't be in? Is it your children? I wrote an article one time that got a lot of, a lot of hits. Uh, an article for the Center of Faith and Preaching, or Center for Faith and Culture, and it was an article that talked about the idolization of our children. Are you willing to let, your children, let, let go of your children for Jesus? Look what Jesus says in his response to the disciples in verses 29. He says, I say to you, there is no one who has left their house. Are you willing to leave your house for Jesus? Or brothers or sisters, are you willing to leave your brothers and sisters for Jesus? Or mother or father or children or lands? Are you willing to leave all that for Jesus? For my sake, he says, and the sake of the gospel. Now, I want to make a very quick caveat here. You notice he didn't say wife or husband there. If you come up to me and you say, God's telling me to leave my wife so I can go cling on to him, I'm going to be like, you're a liar. And you need to go talk to Pastor Kyle for some counseling. And I will drive you there. He doesn't talk about because we're one flesh in the, in the marriage relationship. So if God calls one of you, he calls both of you. That's my belief. But he does say, are you willing to give all that other stuff up? Because you value Jesus more than everything. You see, the value of Jesus and what he does for us, the value of the gospel, puts everything else in its proper perspective, does it not? It puts your family relationships in their proper perspective. It puts your possessions in their proper perspective. It puts your ambitions in the proper perspective. Because in order, in order to cling to Jesus with all you have, you have to drop everything you have. Jesus says, I'm the most valuable thing, but this man... He walks away sorrowful for he had great possession. So that shows us the value of Jesus. But number two, look at the warning here that Jesus gives to us. The warning about the power of wealth. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples are amazed by this statement. In fact, so amazed, I think Jesus, I'm speculating here, but I think Jesus sees the big eyes of his disciples, and he's like, I don't think they picked up that up fully. Let me say it again. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult, he says, is it for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So, according to Jesus' analogy and illustration, how difficult is it for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God? impossible. Have you ever seen a camel? Have you ever seen the eye of a needle? Do you think those two things can go through each other? Maybe a magician can do it, but they're not really doing it. What is Jesus saying here? He's actually showing us the power of money. Now, let me caveat something. Being wealthy is not inherently sinful. If you have wealth, which, by the way, everybody in this room, we are the wealthiest people on the planet, by the way. You may not think you are, but you are. But the reality is wealth has a power of us, but wealth in and of itself is not inherently sinful. Abraham was very wealthy. Joseph was very wealthy. He was second to Pharaoh. 
King David was pretty wealthy. He was the king. Barnabas in the New Testament, he was pretty wealthy. He sold a whole plot of land and gave it to the church. It's not wealth that's the problem. It's the power of wealth that's the problem. John Piper, in one of his lectures, he said, he said, and I don't agree with him fully, and this is like the first time I've ever publicly said I don't agree with John Piper, but he said the point, and I know, forgive me, John, Pastor John, if you're watching this, which you're not. He said, wealth is almost always a curse. And what Jesus is saying, I don't agree fully with that, but I, what, what, what he's trying to argue, I think, what Piper's trying to argue, and I think he's right in saying this, he says that wealth, has a power over us that provides us with a false security. That's the problem with wealth. Is that as the wealthier we become, the more we put our trust in it. The more money we have, the more security that we feel money provides, we're like, "Mm, nothing can go wrong. I've got it all. If I get cancer, no worry. I got enough money to take care of the treatment. If I can't have children, no no worries. I have money. I can go get one. If I have, if I have, uh, you know, if I, if I get into a situation where I lose my job, don't worry about it. I got money that I can last for 10 years. Some of you in this room, you might be like, I don't even need a job. I got so much money. That's the problem. The problem is that wealth brings with it a false sense of security in it. And Jesus says that's why it's impossible for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Because what they're going to do, what we do with our power, or excuse me, with our possessions, is we take our possessions that we have and we put all of our faith in it. And Jesus says, you can't serve money and me at the same time. You're either going to love the one and you're going to hate the other. That's what he is showing us. He's showing us the warning that there is power in wealth that will keep us from him. Imagine this, if you will, right? Imagine this scenario. We put so much, so much uh, security in our wealth that what we typically do is we typically think in our mind, like when you get to heaven, that you're going to be like, hey, God, I'm here. Here's all my money. Pour it out on the table. And say, hey, what I'm going to do, Lord, is uh, I, want, I want a suite in heaven. Here's, here, I'm paying for it. Because I believe in what I trust in this currency to get me into heaven. And God's going to look at you and he's going to say these, he's going to say two truths. He's going to say, number one, I just hate to tell you this, but number one, that's actually all mine anyway. Uh, I gave it to you to steward. I own everything on the earth. You know that, right? So you really just giving me back what I already gave to you. So thanks. And number two, he's going to tell you, this doesn't get you in. He said, no amount of money, no amount of wealth can pay the sin debt for you. Because there's only one way that that sin debt could be paid, and that was through Jesus. It doesn't require currency, it required blood to be spilt. And specifically, the blood of Jesus to be spilt. And that's the problem with money. Money takes our hearts and gives faith and trust only to it and we put we allow money to have power over our lives in such a way that it prevents us like this young man from dropping it and clinging to the most valuable person on the planet jesus and look what jesus says though you say well, what can i do well the good news jesus gives us our final 
statement here in verses 26 through 27. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Well, if this guy who we think is wealthy, and obviously we think he has God's blessing because he's so wealthy and he walks away, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Here's what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, what God has the power to do, just as God has the power to, in the, in the, and when Jesus foretells of his death and resurrection, just as God has the power to resurrect Jesus from the grave, God has the power to get you to open your hands, drop your wealth and your possessions, and cling to the person and work of Jesus. That's how much he loves you. In other words, if you want me to think of it, if you want to think of it this way, what is that one thing that you're holding on to? What God's going to do is God's going to, he's going to begin by the power of his spirit. He's going to begin to open your hands and he's going to cause you to release whatever it is that's holding you back. And as you release it and you drop it and you give it to him, you're going to turn around and you're going to grip onto Jesus with everything you have. And when you grip onto Jesus with everything you have, this is how your idea of possessions changes. Are you ready? You go, you go from saying, this is mine. Here's the heart of generosity. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. Still with me. This is mine to now that I have Jesus, this is yours. What would you have me do with it? How would you have me use it in order to advance your kingdom and glorify your name? How would you have me spend this money? In order to magnify Jesus, who I find most valuable in life. See, it's impossible to do that on your own. Only God can cause you to drop it and give it up in order to cling to Jesus, who is the most valuable possession on this planet. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. What, what is it for you? What is God through this sermon today? What does he put on your heart that's like, this is the one thing you, you have yet to give up for me. This is the one thing you have yet to let go of. Maybe it's a, a relationship or a sin. Maybe it is your money. What is the one thing that God is causing you to wrestle with right now? Like if you heard me talking about biblical generosity today and you got angry... That's a pretty good indicator that it's probably your possessions. If you're in here and you heard me talk about biblical generosity and you got proud and arrogant and prideful, like, oh, I'm such a great gener generous person, then it's probably yourself. What is it that you're holding on to today that's preventing you from fully holding and gripping Jesus? Here's what I want you to do. If your, eyes are, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, what I want you to do is I want you to, in your mind, take that thing I got this from J.D. Sermon, but in your mind, I want you to take that thing and I want you to pretend like it's in your hands. I want you to legitimately take out your hands and grip whatever it is that you believe is holding you back from fully clinging to Jesus with all your heart. Like seriously, take your hands and put them together and say, this is it, Lord. This is my little teddy bear that I'm holding and I'm not willing to let go right now. And then what I want you to do is I want you to ask God to take it from you. Ask God to help you to drop that 
Whatever it is that's holding you back from giving him your full heart, from letting him be the, the, the king on the throne of your heart and, and release it to him and opening your palms towards heaven and say, Lord, I drop it and I give everything. I give my entire heart to you. Now, don't make that move if you're not willing to do it. But if you are, I want you to be in a posture of submission and have your hands open and say, Lord, whatever you've given me, I'm going to use for the advancement of kingdom and the glory of your name. Because I have a heart that values you above all possessions. This morning, if you're here today and that you made that decision, heads bowed, eyes closed, if you made that decision to drop whatever it is, I simply want you to raise your hand in the air. I got you. I got you. I got you. I got you. I want you to know that if you're struggling with something that you're holding on to, that your pastors are here to help you through it. But for all of you that raised your hand, and you can put your hands down. For all of you that raised your hand, I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to pray that God would do the impossible on your heart this morning. And then we're going to take time to come and gather around the communion table. Let's pray. Father, Father, I see you working all across this room. Lord, there were people in here that raised their hands because there's things that they're holding on to that they're holding on to like little gods that they believe will save them, that they, will, they, they trust in, that will bring them security. And Father, when we put our faith and trust in anything besides Jesus, it's only false security. It's a false security that actually prevents us from coming to you, prevents us from eternal life in Christ. Lord, you, it's amazing that over and over in Scripture, like when we think about David, when Samuel goes to pick the next king after Saul and He's going through all the good-looking brothers, and he gets to the, oh, do you have any more? And Jesse's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I got that little kid out in the yard there. He's taking care of the sheep. And God's like, this is the one. And Sam is like, are you sure it's him, God? He doesn't look very kingly. And you said to Samuel, you said, it's not on the outside. I can see what's in his heart. And he is a man after my own heart. Father, I pray that we would recognize that you see in our hearts this morning. And you can tell us right now through your spirit if we have hearts that are truly like your servant David's. Hearts that are seeking after you with everything we have. Hearts that are giving everything to you and saying, you have given me this to steward. How can I use it for you, Lord? So, Father, I pray. I pray today for all those that raise their hand, Lord, that you have dropped that little teddy bear. That insignificant possession so that they can fully grip and wrap their arms around Jesus. And then, and then through that, through them putting their faith and trust in Jesus, they will understand what a heart of generosity really is all about. They will begin to know how to be a generous person in light of their acceptance and faith in the generous gospel. So Father, help anyone in here today. To give everything to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.